There are companies existing today many times richer than a Saudi prince who have become rich because they fill a particular need at a particular time. Inspiring consumers to hand money cash over fist to purchase the very wares they create. But what about the ones that screwed it all up and made the wrong decisions? This is Dumb People with Terrible Ideas. I'm your host, Eric Gray. Here are eight of the worst business decisions in history, in no particular order. In 1985, Coca-Cola decided to change its beloved drink to an entirely different drink named New Coke. This business decision had been done previously by the same company only 80 years prior when they removed the Colombian Bam Bam. If there's one thing consumers love, it's getting fucked up on a consistent basis. If there's two things that consumers love, it's getting fucked up, sure, and general consistency from their products. Did Prohibition teach these fools nothing? Americans don't buy Ritz crackers thinking, I wonder what they've done to tinker with the tried and true recipe this time. They're bought while thinking, Ritz crackers slap my salami, they're the same as I remember. New Coke tasted like a melted down gummy bear mixed with flat soda, mixed with a fresh can of smashed asshole. At least back in the day, you could get hammered on a fat rail of 12-ounce Coca-Cola while you were combing your handlebar mustache on your bike with one really big wheel. But in 1985, you were stuck with no buzz, a bad drink, and movie theaters that still refused to serve hamburgers. New Coke was met with widespread outrage from consumers, and the company was forced to bring back the original recipe as Coca-Cola Classic just a few months later. Coca-Cola was never broken, but they got 15 marketing executives to brainstorm in a conference room for a weekend, and shortly after started slinging an entirely new recipe for their signature product. Now, if they'd only gone back to Coke El Chapo, we wouldn't be having this discussion. In 2000, Blockbuster had the chance to buy Netflix for just $50 million. Blockbuster passed on the deal, which is like turning down a winning lottery ticket because you don't want to carry the extra weight in your wallet. Blockbuster thought that renting DVDs by mail would never catch on, and they were sort of right until high-speed internet happened and then people started streaming America's Funniest Home Videos via Wi-Fi instead of the whole mail thing. And Netflix cleaned up because they saw the future, while Blockbuster was still renting out porn tapes in their special room. No one wanted to be seen in the porn room, man. Back then, you meet your boss in the room looking at breastfeeding women porn, and it's just not a good look especially because you forgot to rewind the tape he was renting. 
Blockbuster was a horse-drawn carriage, and Netflix was the sleek, high-speed bullet train, and Blockbuster was like, nah, thanks, we're good with this uh, wooden carriage. Four fucking nags and the billy goat that just follows them around. Appreciate it, though. Netflix, 20 years later, then tried to one-up the dummies at Blockbuster by trying to cut password sharing and then adding advertisements to a subscription streaming service. If you're in the movie at home rental business like Netflix or Blockbuster, apparently it's important to understand exactly what your customer wants and then not let them have it. It's like loving blowjobs, but hating mouths. Kodak. They invented the first digital camera in 1975, then promptly said, who needs digital cameras? They felt everyone would enjoy spending hours developing film in a pitch black room. They thought that folks would miss the smell of musty chemicals, the darkness, the dampness, you know, college. But consumers want instant gratification and the ability to delete that selfie that they accidentally took with their finger over the lens. Kodak said, nah, we're good with our film canisters. Just take it to the stoner in a 150 degree cardboard box in the middle of a summer Piggly Wiggly parking lot on a Wednesday from 10 to noon, and you'll get your pictures in three weeks after the guy in accounting jerks off to your wife. It was perhaps a Kodak moment frozen in time and unable to change. Kodak, after <laughs> inventing the digital camera, instead focused on traditional film, leading to the company's bankruptcy in 2012. But at least they got to keep copies of your private honeymoon photos. And your wife? <laughs> your wife? Some old geezer you've never met still marvels at her rack. In 1962, Decca Records famously turned down the opportunity to sign the Beatles, saying that guitar groups are on the way out. But it would soon be Decca that cried, help, I need somebody in the financial department. Rejecting the Beatles is like a chef turning down a Michelin-starred meal because they don't like the lighting. Decca Records was like, nah, we're good with our kazoo quartet. Let me check again here. This little group named after a bug, what what were they called again? This, uh, let me check the records real quick. Oh right, the fucking Beatles. Decades after the band's breakup from making music, people still reference them by saying they're not the Beatles, but when showing somebody a new musical act. The Beatles went on to sign with EMI and they became one of the biggest acts in music history. And the band also discovered Yoko Ono, so it was a wash. Once upon a time, it seemed like Sears was too big to fail. That's what everyone thought when Sears expanded into doing oil changes and wedding dresses and slinging credit cards. It was just all downhill after that. 
The humble beginnings of Sears began many decades ago, and they produced a catalog that featured bra photos that the whole family could jerk off to. And actually in poorer Appalachian places, without indoor plumbing and only outside outhouses, that catalog, true story, was often used to wipe your bum if you didn't have toilet paper or leaves around. It was super useful, that's what I'm saying. But in the 1990s, Sears decided to expand its retail offerings beyond appliances and tools and the catalog, and they jumped into things like real estate and financial services, which was like trying to fit a Cadillac into a cat's. It just doesn't work no matter how hard you try. Sears suddenly sold seersucker suits and Sibians. They just threw everything at the wall to see what would stick. Spoiler alert, nothing stuck. They became a jack of all trades, but a master of none. Like Bruce Jenner. Sears executives were playing Monopoly with real money, and they bought up all the railroads and the utilities and wound up being the red-haired kid that loses because he landed on boardwalk twice in a row, flipping over the game board and leaving to set a fire in the backyard and abuse his pet. In the end, Sears learned the hard way that sometimes less is more. Stick to the basics, what Americans love, the tried and true like apple pie, the national anthem, and racism. In 2006, Microsoft attempted to take on the iPod with its own music player, the Zune. Despite spending millions on advertising, the Zune failed to gain any significant market share and was ultimately discontinued in 2011. Microsoft's Zune is like a distant cousin that no one really remembers, but you still have to invite them to family gatherings out of obligation. It's an outdated piece of equipment like uh, floppy disks or pagers or a bachelor's degree. Microsoft saw the success of the iPod and thought, we can do that too. But they ended up falling flat on their face because no one wanted an MP3 player that could be shared with other randos that you happen to be nearby at the DMV. They created a club that no one wanted to be a part of, like the local elementary school's PTA. If you knew someone who owned a Zune at some point, the chances are good that they were some kind of against-the-grain, hippy-dippy dipshit who waited until two weeks ago to put money on GameStop because they refused to follow trends. That's or you knew Bill Gates personally, in which case, Tell him I'm sorry the marriage didn't work out since Melinda always had the better investment portfolio anyway. In 2002, Yahoo had the chance to buy Google for just $1 billion. And they said, no. That's like turning down a date with Halle Berry because you're holding out for Seth Rogen. Yahoo passed on the deal thinking that it was simply too expensive. Today, Google is worth over $1 trillion, 
while Yahoo has been largely relegated to being the weird thing that pops up whenever you're on a computer at a public library. Imagine living in an alternate reality where you, you find yourself saying things like, honey, can you Yahoo who was in Spider-Man? Or even, so I Yahoo divorce lawyers this morning, but I can't afford any good ones. Then Yahoo created, holy shit, they created Yahoo Screen. Yeah, Yahoo Screen. I've been doing research about Yahoo and I just found out about it eight minutes ago. Oh, you don't know Yahoo Screen either? Yahoo Screen produced the sixth season of NBC's Community and had the streaming rights to Saturday Night Live and the distribution rights to the fucking NFL. It should have been a slam dunk moneymaker, but what happened? Well, one, it was streamed through Yahoo, and two, they spent $42 million on getting the band back together on community without spending any money on marketing. And Yahoo's screen's website was buggier than Kid Rock after a Bangkok gangbang. Yahoo's screen was shut down a few years ago a competitor to YouTube, and the second worst decision Yahoo ever made, because they could have bought Google cheap. In 2009, Radio Shack attempted to rebrand itself as The Shack in an effort to appeal to younger customers. The move was a desperate attempt to stay relevant and was the final nutshot in a dizzying array of nutshots over the course of several decades that made Radio Shack as useless as a snooze button on a smoke alarm. Radio Shack sold transistors and antennas and Y cords to hook up your Atari 2600, but you know what they never sold? The Atari 2600 itself. They also sold shitty cell phones that were bad, instead of selling good cell phones that were good. And they put the shitty cell phones in the back of the store, behind the water cooler and beside next week's work schedule, while concentrating on selling you cell phone plans that you didn't need because cell phones were a new technology that you didn't own yet. But to purchase a cell phone at Radio Shack, you had to wander to the back of the store behind the water cooler and beside next week's work schedule. It was almost as bad as Kodak's film room, almost. And it took Radio Shack employees five minutes to sell a phone and an hour to sell the cell phone plan Guess which one Radio Shack concentrated on? Before that, they refused to sell computers. Well, they sold shitty TRS-80s that were bad, instead of Commodore 64s, which were good. Or they could have sold the whole Atari instead of just the connections to hook it up. They were selling calculators and remote-controlled toy cars while ignoring the Sega Genesis, the Nintendo, MP3 players, digital cameras. Hell, you could buy 15 vials of liquid mercury gypsy tears at Radio Shack before you could buy something you wanted. They could have embraced the digital age, being forward on the emerging technologies of computers and cell phones and internet routers, security cameras. 
Instead, they stuck to what they knew. From the days of Dwight Eisenhower, instead of riding the wave of innovation. Instead of rebranding themselves as The Shack, they should have just rebranded themselves Bankrupt. Bad business decisions happen all the time, but it takes a real effort to destroy a multi-billion dollar company. Sometimes, employees go above and beyond to serve the company, making it grow, making it profitable. While other times, they go above and beyond to annihilate it. This concludes episode two of season three of Dumb People with Terrible Ideas. On the eight worst business decisions in history in no particular order, there were three dick jokes, only one poop joke, and it was non-political, so that was a, a rare change. I like it, that was pretty, that's pretty fun. This podcast is produced and performed by Eric Gray, co-written by TJ Small, and the website is ericexplains.com. That's E-R-I-C explains.com. Get on the mailing list, hop on over, I'll send you an email like once a month or so, and you'll get some exclusive content. Once again, that's E-R-I-C explains.com. Have a great day, and thanks for listening.